Good morning. It's good to see you all. Hi, I heard somebody say my name. My name is Ben. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad to be here with you guys uh, talking about the scriptures this morning. Uh, we are talking about the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament book of Kings. So I would encourage you to open up to Kings chapter 21. And today we have another Elijah story. But actually, um, this story is, is really interesting because Elijah is actually not the main character. And we're going to find out... Um, some really interesting things, uh, actually, about one of the other main characters. But before we dive into 1 Kings chapter 21, I would like to pray for our time in the Word. Jesus, this is your Word. You are the Word. You are the living Word, and you're here with your people as we gather this morning. Father, I confess that I uh, am inadequate to understand your Scriptures fully. I confess that I'm inadequate to uh, communicate them truly. And I trust that your spirit will make up the difference. Jesus, thank you that you, uh, that you are our teacher, that you are our rabbi this morning, and that you have something to show us in your word. I ask that our hearts would be open, that our distractions would fade into the background, and that uh, your spirit would move in our hearts and in our lives, and that when we encounter you, we would be changed. We love you, God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, this is a story about Elijah, Elijah being a prophet of Israel, right? During a really tumultuous, tumultuous time in Israel's history, and uh, he's sort of this, uh, this like iconic figure. Today we would call him like, like a cult figure, right? Because he, he's sort of this wilderness guy who sort of just comes in and announces the word of God and then goes back out to the wilderness, and he has this sort of mythic uh, personality that then carries on throughout the generations of Israel, and, and the echoes of his personality just continue to resound throughout Israel's history. And uh, today we're going to read a story where he is actually sort of a minor character. There's lots of really interesting characters in this story. There's some tragic figures. There's some really, really despicable characters. Uh, and then there's some sort of morally ambiguous characters. And then, of course, there's Elijah, who maybe we could categorize as one of the morally ambiguous characters. And then there's a character that I think um, often, when I read the Bible, I forget about. There's a character that, uh, that actually the, the story uh, is, is actually all about, and sometimes I forget to pay attention to what's going on in this with, around this character, what, what the story is telling me about this character. Of course, of course, I'm talking about the character of God. God shows up in this story. Uh, God actually shows up in every story of the Bible. Uh, God, God is uh, a main character in this story, and I think a really helpful way to read the Bible, if you ever struggle with like, well, how do I interpret the Bible? How do I really know like, how to read the Bible? A really helpful guiding question is just simply this. What is this story or this passage tell me about who God is? What does this tell me about who God is? And uh, in one sense, from one angle, you could say that the entire Bible is really just about trying to get us fallen human beings to understand who God really, really is. Not what our broken minds have conceived, but who God really, really is in and of himself, and what he knows himself to be, and then helping us come into contact with that God. And so today, I think our guiding question through this passage, something that'd be really helpful for us is to go, uh, to just continually ask, what is this telling us about God? 
Because there's some challenging things in this passage. There's some things that happen that are a little uncomfortable. In fact, I have to warn you, blood and guts warning, there's a little bit of some PG-13 gore in this uh, story here. But uh, we have to look... (laughs) Somebody's excited. Uh, We have to to look at even those really challenging, hard-to-take, uncomfortable things and ask, what is this saying about who God is? So let's start in uh, 1 Kings chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Here's the story. Sometime later, there was an incident. <laughs> Uh-oh, there's an incident. There's an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Uh, Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. Seems reasonable. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So the king comes to Naboth and he says, hey, I want your vineyard. Give it to me so I can plant vegetables and I'll compensate you and you'll be fine. No big deal. But Naboth says, the Lord forbid. This is really interesting. And and I think uh, it takes a little unpacking to understand. Naboth responds with the covenant name of God, the Lord. When you see the Lord in all caps in your Bible, it's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. It's God's name that he gave his people to say, I am your God, you are my people. We're covenanting ourselves to one another, and this then is how you live as people of God, people of Yahweh. So he says, Yahweh forbid that I should ever give away the inheritance of my ancestors. The reason he says this is because back in Leviticus, one of our favorite books to read, right? Back in Leviticus, this, uh, this uh, book that has all these uh, ways to live, all these rules, all these laws of how they are to live as God's people, there's a section that talks about what to do with property. And that was really important back then because property was your wealth. It was your uh, sustenance. It was how you could survive generation after generation. And there's a provision in Leviticus uh, to discourage people from selling the land that belongs to their family, to discourage people from selling it unless in dire need. And then even if they did have to sell it, if later on they found that they could afford to buy it back, they had to be allowed to buy it back without any interest or inflation. And then even if they couldn't buy it back, every 49 years, they were meant to practice something called the year of Jubilee, where all land would be returned to the family that it originally belonged to. This was God's way of stopping the cycle of generational poverty that people cannot get out of. In fact, the book of Leviticus has a lot of really, really, really powerful things to say about the systems of money, how we exchange money, what we do with money, lending without interest. And it says a lot of things about, actually about loans and interest. And uh, has a lot to say about this because God didn't want people to get trapped in this never-ending cycle of poverty where children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren were stuck without anything to their name, with no way to support themselves, and were very little better than slaves. And so Naboth says, no, 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 I respect the Lord Yahweh, and he has said that we aren't to to do this. We're not to just buy land because we want it and get rid of our land because we want the money. Even though you're the king, I'm following the, the law of Yahweh. So no, far be it from me. I would never, I would never do what God has commanded me not to do. So verse 4, so Ahab went home sullen and angry. That's, uh, that's Bible speak for he had a temper tantrum. 
Because Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refusing to eat. Man, good thing I never overreact like that. His wife Jezebel came to him and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? So Jezebel enters the story. Jezebel is a really interesting character because she, uh, she's, a, she's from a foreign kingdom. She has a different way of doing things. She brings not only her ways of doing things, not only uh, the, the customs of her brutal nation, she brings their gods as well and starts in, uh, having Ahab start worshiping her gods. So when she shows up, we're supposed to sort of have a little shudder down the back of our neck and, oh, no, this is not good. So Jezebel says, why are you so sullen? Why don't you eat? So, so uh, he explains, he answered her, because Naboth the Jezreelite, I said to him, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you, land, or I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. So obviously, I'm pouting on my bed. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she looks at him and she says, what are you doing? You're cowering on your bed. You're just whining and crying and complaining, refusing to eat because he invoked the name of Yahweh? And now you feel like your hands are tied? You can't do anything? Please. This isn't how we do things back home where I'm from. Please. This isn't how a king responds back home where I'm from. And so he gives her the authority to deal with the situation how she would. So verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed a seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he cursed both God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. So what she's saying is, proclaim a special day of fasting and prayer and get all the people together and make sure Naboth is like right out in front. And then hire two lowlifes from the local town to stand up and falsely accuse him of cursing God and the king. And it, it, uh, this is really interesting because uh, she actually uses a, a law from Leviticus about stoning and about blasphemy and all this stuff uh, against Naboth. So he, he's, he's standing on the law, right? Naboth is standing on the law. He's saying, I can't sell you the land, king, because of this law and because I respect Yahweh. And so Jezebel's going, oh, well, two can play at this game. I'm going to have somebody accuse you of something that, according to that same law, is punishable by death. So she starts to plot injustice, but notice that it's a religious injustice. Notice that it's even a legal injustice. She doesn't, she doesn't uh, dance around the laws or break the laws. All she does is get somebody to falsely accuse him of breaking a law, and that's it. And so she starts to plot how to destroy this man Naboth just for refusing the vineyard. And, uh, of course, we know how the story goes. We know how the story goes whenever somebody in power chooses to use their power to uh, perform an injustice on somebody else. This is just the world we live in, right? Of course it happens. Naboth is accused. He is dragged outside the city. He is stoned to death. And then verse 15 as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard, Naboth the Jezreelite, he, uh, that he refused to sell you. 
He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up, went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. They win. The powerful bad guys win. They got the vineyard. Naboth is dead. And this guy who didn't do anything except try to be faithful to the way of God is now dead. So what does this teach us about God? That's an uncomfortable question at this point, isn't it? Because we live in a world where this stuff happens. I, I, I'm uncomfortable with that truth. I would like the Bible to pull me out of the real world for a minute. But the Bible is relentlessly, relentlessly realistic about the world, about human nature. And what this tells me about God is that sometimes... Even in a world where God is king, bad things happen to good people. Injustice is performed against God's chosen people, even when they're doing everything right. What this tells me about God is that he respects human dignity and loves humanity to the point where he allows us to make real choices with real consequences and real fallout. What this tells me is that none of us are immune from injustice. And that would be a really depressing sermon if it ended right there, right? But the truth is, injustice happens in God's good world because not all human beings want to follow God's good way. And when human beings are given power, whether it's power over a nation like Ahab, whether it's power over a workplace, whether it's power over a family or children, or power over even just your own little routines and world, when human beings are given power, they can use it for the glory of God and the edification of everyone around them, or they can use it to do harm to others and to themselves and ultimately to God's order of creation. And that's just a hard truth. And it's hard to recognize that God gives us the dignity of making those choices. He gives it to you and to me and to Ahab. He doesn't always stop us when we're about to ruin things. So that's the first thing it really tells me about God. But thank goodness that's only halfway through the chapter and there's a little more yet to explore here. Verse 17, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. There's Elijah. I knew he'd get in here somewhere. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now at Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah and he says, go, tell Ahab that I have seen what he and Jezebel did. I didn't ignore it. I didn't turn a blind eye. I saw it and I will bring about recompense. This is good news because God, even if he occasionally allows injustice in his world. He is never, ever, ever, ever blind to it. Never. And this is really good news for some of us who may, have, who may feel like the world or our lives or the forces of evil or the powers of that be have crushed us. 
those who feel crushed by whatever. Maybe it's just the course of your life through circumstances that are beyond your control. Maybe you feel crushed by actual powers and authorities around you. Maybe you, maybe you have a boss at work who picks on you. Maybe you just feel crushed or unjustly done by. And the good news is God is not blind to that. How could he be a good God if he saw Naboth get slaughtered and his vineyard stolen and didn't take note and didn't start to move to bring about justice, to set things right, to make recompense, to balance the scales out? So what this tells me is that God sees injustice and evil and he acts to correct it. Yes, in this broken world, bad things occasionally happen to good people, but God sees and he works to correct it. And then in verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, so you found me, my enemy. <laughs> I love Ahab. He just, he, he's, I love Ahab because whatever he's thinking, he says it. There's, just no, there's no guile in the man. He's, ah, I don't like you. You're my enemy. Uh, so Elijah comes to Ahab. I have found you, Elijah answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's pretty strong language. You have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Do you ever think about sin like that? It's a, you know, we, we, we don't like to think about sin in strong terms, but I, I love the way that the Bible says you sold yourself to do evil consciously. You made a choice that you were going to sell yourself to this other path. That's why the Bible in the New Testament talks about how if we sin, we become slaves to sin because we have sold ourselves, which is why we need a, a rescue. More on that later. You have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 21, he says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that, that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and the son of Bashah, and that of Bashah, the son of Abijah. So many names. Because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also, concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. So Elijah comes and pronounces judgment on Ahab. God, God is beginning to work justice. He's saying, okay, you killed this man unjustly. You took his land, and now I'm going to set things right by now bringing disaster on you, on your household. In fact, you, you have, you, you're not just, this is not a one-time thing for you. You have sold yourself to do evil. In fact, look at the next verse, verse 25. It's just a little explanation, a little side note. It says, there never was anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites and the Lord drove, that the Lord drove out before Israel. So they put that note in there just in case we're tempted to go, oh, poor Ahab. Oh, poor guy. Why is God being so unfriendly towards him? And what this is reminding us is actually that Ahab has been given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and there was never anyone in the world that sold himself to evil the way he did. And so God, far from being quick to anger, is actually slow to anger. 
All through the Old Testament, God describes himself as slow to anger. He's given him chance after chance after chance after chance, and now he has murdered the innocent just to take their land away from them. And God says, enough is enough. Now my anger is aroused. God is patient. God is so patient. But the good news for us also, right? the patience of God is good news, but the other good news is that God also knows when to say enough is enough. And if you feel like there's just like so much evil running rampant in the world around you right now, I know a lot of people are just, we, we can feel pretty dizzy by it. You know, it's just like, whoa, more going on, more violence, more anger, more hatred, more, all, oh, so, there's just so much coming at me all the time right now. And can, I can get overwhelming. And the good news is God knows when to say enough is enough. God occasionally allows injustice in his, in his world. God sees. He's not blind to it. And God works to bring justice because he knows when to say enough is enough. But now the story sort of slows down a little bit. That was a lot of setup. In fact, that all, all of that, I would say, is set up for these last few verses. Because some of us feel like Naboth, Right? Some of us feel like Naboth, and we feel like the world has crushed us through no fault of our own, injustice has been done to us, somebody hurt us, the powers that be, whatever it is, we feel like Naboth, we feel crushed, we feel like, does God even see the pain and the evil I'm experiencing? And some of us, well, we may not have done what Ahab did in this story, some of us have spent so long just clobbering our own conscience... That we feel like Ahab when we read the story. We're like, oh, I'm, that's me. I'm, I'm that guy. The Lord's going to bring judgment on me. Oh, man, I'm, I'm the bad guy in this story. But this story is actually not about who's in the right, Naboth or Ahab. The story is actually not about who can call out who, Elijah, Ahab, right? This story is actually about God. And this is the God who cares about the unjustly murdered and even about the one who is abusing his power as king of Israel. Let's look at what this says in verse 27. When Ahab heard these words, this threat from Elijah, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put, sackcloth on his face, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. So he does all the practices of repentance. He humbles himself. He kneels down. He refuses to eat. Puts on sackcloth, which was like this mourning thing that they would wear to just show their repentance and their anguish over their sin. And he begins to cry out to God in repentance. And some of us are pretty cynical, and we'll look at that, and myself included, we'll look at that and go, yeah, but is God really fooled? Does God really think he means it? He's just scared. He's just scared. He doesn't want to die. He doesn't want his kids to die. He, just, he, wants, he wants to live a long, prosperous life. And so he's like, oh, no, now I'm, gonna, now I'm in big trouble. And so now I'm going to, it's sort of like when you're a little kid and you get caught doing something you're not supposed to do. And your parent is like, hey, go say you're sorry to that person you just, your sibling who you just punched in the face or whatever it is. Go say you're sorry. And you're like, sorry. And then you walk away, right? You didn't really mean it. And that's sort of what Ahab's doing here. He's like, oh, sorry, God. Oh, I'm so humble. Sorry, God. I'm still going to take the vineyard. Sorry, though. Sorry about that. 
that's what it feels like he's doing, doesn't it? But God responds like this. I love, I love this. And this is, I think, one of the most important things we can see about who God is in this passage. Verse 28. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring disaster in his day, but I will bring it on the house in the days of his son. You almost get a sense of God's enthusiasm for mercy here. It's almost like he sidles right up to Elijah and pokes him in the ribs, and he's like, hey, have you noticed? Did you, do you see that? Have you noticed how humble Ahab has become? And sure, he may or may not mean it, but I'm, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to cancel the wrongdoing. I'm not going to cancel the wrongdoing. But I'm, I'm going to delay my judgment. I'm going I'm to open just the littlest window in Ahab's life to see if he'll persevere in repentance. God sees even just a glimmer of real humility, even just this tiniest little speck of real repentance and turning back to God. And he says, okay, 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 everybody pause. We're going to open a little doorway here. And if Ahab wants to, he can persevere in repentance. And even he, yes, Ahab, who we just read, there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. The worst of the worst of the worst of the worst, God opens the door for even him to return to God. And so often in our lives, we wonder, is there hope, is there hope for me? Is there... And as soon as we turn to God in repentance, he opens a little doorway for mercy and he, sa- and he says, hey, persevere in repentance, keep going, and there can be mercy. Why? How is this possible? Because this is the God who relents. He relents in bringing disaster, as the scriptures say. We already sang it this morning. Micah chapter 7, he delights to show mercy. Do you get a sense of how excited he is as soon as he sees that there might be a little opening for grace? Yes, he's ready to bring judgment. Yes, he's ready to correct the scales of injustice. But he's also ready for mercy to give mercy to the humble. The, 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 this might also make us uncomfortable. Some of us might be uncomfortable hearing about God's justice, God's judgment. Some of us are probably uncomfortable hearing about God's mercy because it doesn't sound fair. And some of you might even be sitting there going, who is this long-haired kid who is talking about the mercy of God as if it's somehow stronger than his justice and judgment? And I get it. We might feel a little shy about emphasizing God's mercy and grace and forgiveness over and above his justice and his judgment. But I will tell you the Bible, yes, even the Old Testament, feels no such shyness. In fact, I wasn't, I wasn't sure I was going to do this, but let, let me read to you from uh, Exodus 34. This is where Moses asks God, hey, God, tell me who you are. I just really want to know who you are. Tell me your name. Tell me who you are. And God proclaims his own identity, which is really the only way we can know anything real about God, right? We can't figure it out. We can't 
decide who he is. We can't study enough and research enough to understand who he is. But if he reveals himself to us, then we know for sure that's what God is like. And just listen to this from uh, verse 6 of Exodus 34. And he, that is God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So God comes and he says, first word out of his mouth, I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I want you to know these few verses where God discloses his own identity to Moses are repeated more than any other verse in the Bible. They are repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. This is the most repeated verse in the Bible. And God starts to talk about how he's gracious, slow to anger, compassionate. But then there's this afterthought, right? There's this thing right at the end. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He sees sin and he corrects it. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. There are real consequences to our choices. But also notice this. That passage I just read, verses 6 through 7 of Exodus 34, is wildly, insanely lopsided. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and he won't leave the guilty unpunished. His mercy looms large. His justice is necessary for his goodness and for our well-being, but it does not loom as large as his readiness to show mercy. In fact, There's this great spot where it says in verse 7 that he maintains love to thousands. What the text really says there in the original Hebrew is he he maintains love to a thousand generations. And then it says later on, but he visits the sin of the parents upon the children to the third and fourth generation. So love goes to a thousand generations, and then uh, the, the punishment for sin goes to the third and fourth generation. What it's trying to get us to understand is that God's justice and God's mercy are not equal. That given the chance, if we will just open the door a crack... If we will just open it a little bit, given given the chance, God's mercy will always overwhelm his judgment. Even back here in the Old Testament where we think about angry and judgment-hungry God. God will always pour out mercy if he gets the chance. The problem is most of us don't give him the chance. In fact, we know about Ahab and we're going to see later on he doesn't give God the chance. He opens a little door and then quickly shuts it. He's too prideful. He wants to go his own way. He won't persevere in repentance and humility. But God wants to. God wants to not only bring about justice, but he wants to bring about mercy. He wants to pour it out even on the Ahabs of the world. And as you start to realize this, you start to go, no wonder people were so offended at Jesus. Because we look at that and we go, wait, how is that possible? How can God be good if he's willing to give Ahab mercy while Naboth lies dead in the street? How is that okay? How is that possible? How can God be just and merciful if he's willing to do that? And I think like so many things in the Bible, we can't really understand what God is trying to communicate about himself until we look at the person of Jesus 
Because many generations after this story we just read, there was another innocent man in that same part of the world who again was accused by two witnesses and again was accused of cursing God and the emperor. And this man was also murdered unjustly by the powers that be. And the system that he was in conspired to crush him. Only this man was truly innocent. Naboth, what, you know, he, he was innocent in this instance, but surely he'd done something in his life. You know? Surely he wasn't perfect. But Jesus, when he was falsely accused, had done nothing wrong. Pilate could find no fault in him. Even the authority figures could find no cause for punishing him. And this man, when he was murdered unjustly, cried out to his father, Father, forgive these my murderers. Forgive these Ahabs. They don't know what they're doing. See, Jesus is the true king of Israel that Ahab couldn't be, who instead of murdering the innocent, goes into their place and is crushed by the unjust powers and authorities around him in their place. So why can God be all about correcting injustice and also be so ready to give mercy on the worst of the worst? Answer, Jesus Christ. The one who is willing to be crushed with and for Naboth. The one who is willing to be a humble and merciful true king of Israel. The one who even as he's being unjustly murdered cries out for the forgiveness of his accusers. And when we start to look at it through that lens, when we start to look through the cross, we go, oh, oh, that's what God is like. God has to, God has to enact justice when injustice is done. He has to. He wouldn't be good. And thank goodness he does because some of us have been horribly unjustly treated. But he does it by standing in the gap himself. And when there's a doorway, just a little doorway, just a little crack opened up for mercy, he comes flooding in. And then one more thing I'd like to point out about this passage that I think is really powerful for us today. The word of the Lord, the word of judgment and the word of mercy comes to Ahab through Elijah. Comes to Ahab through Elijah. And I think that tells us, uh, as, and as we look at the story of Scripture unfolding, I think that tells us that God actually wants to use his people for both those things. He wants us to be part of communicating to the world that the way it's going is wrong, and the way that God has for us is actually the way to life. He wants to use us to, for a lack of a better phrase, call out the evil and injustice happening all around us, to stand with those who are being unjustly treated. And hear me out, I'm not making a political statement. The person unjustly treated might be someone in your household who is being accused and teased and put down all the time. He tells us 
to stand with those who are being unjustly treated, to call injustice and evil what it is, and then when the door is open for mercy, to administer that mercy. I love the book of uh, the epistle of Peter in the New Testament when he calls us a holy priesthood. What does a priest do? Who pleads the guilt of the people before God and then administers the forgiveness of God to the people. There are people around you who need someone to call out what they're experiencing as evil, as injustice, as wrong, as God is not happy that you are being hurt in that way. And there are people around you who, as they repent and return to God, need you to remind them again and again and again and again and again, he delights to show mercy. He's compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, maintaining love to thousands. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And we, as God's people, as sort of, if, if I can say it this way, as Elijah's in the world, we get to be God's communicators of that word. So I guess I'll close by saying this. I think uh, in the world we live in today, it can be really bewildering. We look around and we go, what's right? What's wrong? What's going on? Is the social fabric tearing? Is my family fabric tearing? My heart feels heavy all the time, and I don't always know why. What's happening all around us? Is the world as we know it coming to an end? And we start to look and we go, look at that evil perpetrated over there. Look at that injustice perpetrated over there. Look at all the things coming at us. Look at things coming out of my own soul. Maybe I didn't murder anybody, but I sure feel like an Ahab. God, what is it all about? What does it all mean? And this is the God who comes, parachutes into the story, parachutes right in, and stands with the unjustly condemned and opens a door for the evil to repent. This is a God who offers a way out to both those hurt and to those who have hurt another. And to be, and truth be told, on, on a more micro level, on not just a you know, government global level, and on a micro level, we are all both Naboth and Ahab. We have all been hurt and crushed. We have all received suffering that was not our fault. We have all experienced the brokenness of the world. And to be honest, we've all participated in it in one way or another. And so God comes into the middle of that and he says, you can both be restored from your hurt and forgiven for your wrong. And that's a perfect picture of restoration. I, I just have a feeling that if we start to let God restore us in that way, restore our small families in that way, restore our communities in that way, that's actually the way forward for the world to start repenting of its evil and injustice and start finding mercy from this God who is always ready to pour it out. I'm going to pray and we're going to continue in worship uh, and uh, the offering. That'll be our time for offering. So uh, you can, you'll see the slide. You can give online and, and pull out your phones and do that. But as we go today, let's just consider where God stands in stories of injustice and how God actually satisfies both justice and mercy and offers us a way out. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you so much that uh, as we look at even these Old Testament stories that can seem archaic, that you, you, Jesus, loom large. You loom large. You stand with the Naboths of the world. That you are the true king of Israel 
who takes judgment on yourself so that mercy can be offered even to us, even to us who are seasoned sinners. Jesus, as we, open, uh, as we continue to uh, read your word and as we continue to learn about the story of Elijah, I ask that you would continue to loom large. Because I know that the world, as crazy as it is and as crazy as it feels in our own souls, you, Jesus, your work on the cross, your work on our behalf, standing in the gap with us, you are the answer. So God of justice, God of mercy, come restore us, restore our families, restore our communities. We lean into who you are. And we trust you. Thank you for this morning. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.